Stay hungry, stay foolish. Where did the idea of race come from and what does it mean? Race is a social construct. Our problem is we find this hard to believe. Our guest today is an award-winning author. She investigates the concept of race from its origin to the present day, engaging with geneticists, anthropologists, historians, and social scientists from across the globe. Her book is a rigorous, much-needed examination of the insidious and destructive nature of the belief that race is real and that some groups of people are superior to others. She is author of Superior, The Return of Race Science. Angela Saini, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. Angela, I was telling you off air before the show that it was such a necessarily uncomfortable read. Although I'm Irish and the Irish have suffered atrocities in the past, I never thought that our skin colour affords us privileges before because I have no idea what it is to suffer because of the colour of my skin. Your book is so very important. We have such deep-rooted mental models about race, and just as they have set like concrete over centuries, it's going to take so much time to reset that concrete, to smash it up, and to build a new way of thinking about race and the fact that it's a social construct. And I thought it was equally important in today's socio-political climate, but also in the midst of genetic modification technology like CRISPR, where we have gene modification. These are very strange times that we're living in. And I don't think I anticipated when I started writing Superior, which was after Trump became president of the US, but before things went really, really crazy, <laughs> that... Um, that we would be in the situation that we're in now. But I do I do think, especially with Black Lives Matter last year and the direction that I've seen universities going in, museums, lots of cultural institutions are revisiting the past and and showing a degree of introspection that I've never seen before, that um, things maybe will change. I, I, f- I feel optimistic. Even given how terrible things are now, I do feel optimistic. There have been a lot of books written um, over the past few decades looking at the science of race, the genetics of race, uh, dismantling that. And it's not very difficult to dismantle because these ideas were pretty spurious and arbitrary to begin with. But unless you understand the dimension of power and politics and history and culture and all these things, then really you can't put that in any context because then you're left asking then if these ideas were always so nonsensical and pseudoscientific, then why do we have them at all? Why do we still live with them? And you need the history to understand that. So I think that's what I was trying to do in Superior is explain that this isn't something you can understand through just one lens. You have to look at it in in all its different facets and then you start to see it for what it really is. And it really is, I think at the heart of it, it really is just about power. It is that idea of challenging the status quo and the status quo is driven by power because They've the status quo has been developed from the way things were, so it's never going to welcome change. And I think this is a, an important message behind your work. But I'd love to share the history because it's so enlightening, and that new information makes you question the mental constructs you have in the first place. And I quote this fascinating passage from the start of the book. You said, "In 1795, in the third edition of On the Natural Varieties of Mankind." 
German doctor Johann Friedrich Blumenbach described five human types, Caucasian, Mongolians, Ethiopians, Americans, and Malays, elevating Caucasians, his own race, to the status of the most beautiful of them all. And you say, being precise, Caucasian refers to people who live in the mountainous Caucasus regions between the Black Sea to the west and the Caspian Sea to the east. But under Blumenbach's sweeping definition, it encompassed everyone from Europe to India and North Africa. It was hardly scientific, even by the standards of his time, but his vague human taxonomy would nevertheless have lasting consequences that we live with today. Yeah, and under actually Blumenbach's definition, I would be Caucasian. So there was a period of history for which, during which I would be considered Caucasian. Of course, Caucasian today is the polite word that we use to describe white people. And under that definition, I wouldn't, I'm not considered white. I'm, I've got brown skin, so I'm loosely considered brown. But then politically, you know, when I was part of anti-racism movements in the 90s and 2000s, and even now my union, the National Union of Journalists, considers me a black member, because if you're not a white member, then you're a black member. There are only two categories there. And that's because of the um, the way the anti, that anti-racism movements in the 60s, 70s and 80s and beyond were, de- were defined. You know, if you're fighting racism and you weren't white, then you were black. So I am simultaneously then, depending on your definition, white, brown and black all at once, which, which to me really goes to show how random and arbitrary these ideas are. The boundaries have always shifted. Um, and th- that's been necessary because if you think that they are, if you believe that they are politically motivated, which of course they are, then the boundaries matter because then you get to decide who gets to be part of this group and who doesn't. Who gets? Who do we get to include and who we who don't we? There's a really nice set of anecdotes I read when I was researching Superior that I didn't include in the book at, in the end, but I often think about, which is so one of the very first laws to pass in the United States with regards to immigration was against immigration from Asia, which in the US means China, so, you know, East Asia. And there was a person um, of Indian origin, but of a high caste. So this is someone of who's considered a really high breeding, high status in India, high caste Indian man came to the US and said, well, I'm legitimately a Caucasian using that Bloom and Bark definition. So shouldn't I be included in this kind of permitted group that should be allowed to live here and be a citizen and be considered one of you. And they said to him, well, no, because you've got brown skin, so you're not really Caucasian, so you can't come in. And then a Chinese man did exactly the same. He said, well, I've got white skin. Can I be considered one of you? Do, do I count as one of you? And they said, no, because you're not Caucasian. <laughs> so you really, they manipulate, you know, people, you see this right throughout history, people manipulating the boundaries. And the boundary of whiteness in particular is one of the most heavily policed. Because if this is the privileged group, and I'm talking about in Western countries here, if this is the privileged group, then you really want to restrict access to that as much as possible. And you you witness people kind of jumping through hoops in order to restrict those who can be categorized as white and who can't. You go deeper into this, and I pull this quote here. You said, no region or people has a claim on superiority. Race is the counter-argument. Race is at its heart the belief that we are born different, deep inside our bodies, perhaps even in character and intellect, as well as in outward appearance. It's the notion that groups of people have certain innate qualities that are not only visible at the surface of their skins, 
but are intrinsic to their physical and mental capacities that perhaps even help define the passage of progress, the success and failure of the nations our ancestors came from. I'd love if you unpack that because there is so much meaning in there. I think, first of all, you have to ask yourself, why does race matter to people? If it was, if we understood it just to be about physical attributes, skin color or certain facial features, then I don't think it would have anywhere near as much value in society or meaning in value in society as it does now. So it can't just be about phenotypic superficial features. The reason the race matters is because for hundreds of years, it has been conflated with other things, not just physiological things, but psychological things. This idea that certain countries are less prosperous economically because of some weakness, some deep down racial weakness that they have, that other countries are more prosperous because they have some kind of racial superiority to everybody else, some deep down quality that other people don't have. And all countries around the world, I should add, have their own myths that they set up about who they are as a people. And um, everyone wants to believe that they're superior to everybody else. Every every group of people want to believe that. And they build their origin myths, their nationalistic stories around that. So much so that now in the 21st century, we've come to believe them. We, you know, we've bought into it. This is what white supremacy is. It's about believing these myths that were created in order to build the na- a nation that now people have absorbed to such a deep extent, they genuinely do believe that there is something about their whiteness that makes them better than everybody else. But it's not just white supremacy. You see this everywhere. There is also this myth of Chinese exceptionalism in China, that the Chinese people were not descended from the out of Africa expansion. So modern humans expanded out of Africa 100,000 or so years ago. We're all the products of that. But the Chinese say, no, we were, there's this common myth, even circulating in some scientific circles, that the Chinese evolved independently from an earlier form of Homo erectus that lived in China millions of years ago. And that, again, is a myth that ties them to the land that says that we have a claim to this land that nobody else can have because we viscerally belong to it. We are indigenous in a way that nobody else can have a claim to it. And you see these ways of thinking everywhere, which are completely understandable, because how do you build a nation if it isn't on these kind of myths? It doesn't exist otherwise. You know, all a nation is, is territory, which is movable, and these kind of myths and values and stories that we create around ourselves. That's the only boundaries that we have around people, are these cultural myths and cultural stories. So I can understand where they come from. The thing is that Today in the 21st century, we have so detached ourselves from the fact that these are just stories. We have started to believe that they mean something, that they actually have some kind of biological tangibility deep down, that race, which is an arbitrary way of thinking of of dividing humans up, and we can't be divided, really. There are no natural divisions, subdivisions between us, but of linking this idea of race with with these stories. And all of it was made up. You know, none of it was ever real. I'd love to come back to that out of Africa hypothesis, which is fascinating. But you start the book in a museum. So you're in one of the museums in, in the UK, in the, in the History Museum, and you're looking at all these artifacts all around you. And you talked about that the colonizers were the winners. So in a way, that they felt that gave them the right to take things. They gave themselves the right to document history as they saw it. 
And this is where it all began because they created these what we perceived as realities because we're born into them. And, you know, the whole idea of being born into a paradigm, you accept it as that's reality for me. But this is why I think your book is so important that we have to challenge that. And your book gives us the information to do that. Like anybody else, when I go to the British Museum, and I've been there since I was a young child because I've grown up in London, um, you know, my parents would take me to the India galleries because, you know, we they are of Indian heritage and you want to see stuff from your heritage and you feel like you have an attachment to it that, that you don't have with any of the other galleries. It's part of you and part of your culture. In reality, the way that we construct museums and the way that we divide them is very interesting. And I visit a lot of museums around the world and and it always interests me the way that they categorize things, the way that they divide things up. So, for example, the American Museum of Natural History, I was there last year. And it's a very old museum and it carries a lot of the kind of 19th, 30, 20th century legacies of how do we divide people up and parts of it look very racist as a result of that. And they're, they're cognizant of that. You know, the museum curators understand that they need to put things in better context and explain things better, and they're trying to do that. But what this tells you is how people think about human difference underneath it all. And all national museums, I think, to some extent, are a project in not just explaining facts to people, but also in elevating the nation, in saying, in presenting the best possible version of that nation. Um, and that's also what racial ideas are, are about. It's about presenting the best possible version of yourself in relation to everybody else. Um, there are no, you know, no culture actually sits in complete isolation from another. And this is what you miss when you see galleries divided the way that you do. When you see an India gallery or a China gallery or a Greek gallery or a Roman gallery, all these cultures were intertwined, deeply intertwined, trading with each other, um, collecting information from each other, borrowing from each other all the time. And when you understand history, you start to see those interlinkages and how they work. You see, start to see the overlaps. So, for example, at the moment, I'm studying ancient the ancient Greeks for a book I'm writing. And I see so many overlaps with ancient India. And that's to, to be expected because the Hellenic world spread all the way to ancient India. So of course that would be the case. They were, you know, they were completely mixed up with each other. Um, but we don't think of it that way now. Why do we not think of it that way? That I think is the biggest tragedy is that we don't think about human history as human history. We think of it as British history, Irish history, American history. These, the, these countries, these places, these nations were never divided in the ways that we imagine they were. Their successes and their achievements were never in isolation. They were always dependent on each other. Um, and I think that's in superior one of the ideas I want to move us away from is this kind of siloing of ourselves in certain identities. Identity politics does matter. It's important because how do you fight for your rights unless you can um, assert your identity and, you know, make it clear the the basis of your oppression? Unless you can say, for example, as a woman, I suffer this gender pay gap and all, you know, women on average suffer this gender pay gap. Unless you identify these things and you can't do it. But at the same time, we have to understand also our shared humanity. And I think that's another thing that, race and racism does is it it is it takes away that shared humanity and says no this belongs to me and this belongs to you and these two things do not overlap in any way they're not connected in any way 
that's the thing that I think we need to start fixing. And indeed, people are fixing it. You know, those histories are finally starting to be told. The book unveils a lot of villains, let's call them that, people who really worked hard to segregate people and prove that everybody's different, etc., to create these kind of polarization in society and essentially create superiority. But you reminded me there of, of a hero of the a hero of the book, which is a guy called Luigi Luca Cavalli Sforza. And I loved what you t- told about him. You said that he was one of these guys. He's like, why measure it? Why look for that in the first place? And I thought that was a very important question to pose. I think we have to understand history, not just as good guys and bad guys. Obviously, there are some guys who we can definitively say were pretty terrible, even in their own time, you know, even without retrospection and and you know taking them out of context we can say that even in their own time they were very racist that they were considered fringe figures even then but i think if we if we're honest um most people have ideas at various points in time that subsequent generations will think are beyond the pale I'm sure we have ideas right now in the cultures that we live in that future generations will think are absolutely abhorrent and shocking. So, for example, I'm not a vegetarian myself, but I can I can completely see the possibility that in 100 years people will think that eating meat is was a terrible, terrible thing. The way that we raise cattle and the way that we raise animals was a was an absolutely evil, terrible thing to do. We don't think that now, and that's the kind of position that sometimes we need to take with regards to historical figures. And I think Luigi Luca Cavalli-Sforza is one of those. So he was um, he was still alive when I was writing my book. I interviewed him, sadly, just a few months before he died. He was a population geneticist who, in the 20th century, helped found the field of population genetics after the Second World War. So this was a field that essentially reconciled science with race science of the past. So before the Second World War, it was quite common for universities to have eugenics labs and race science labs to think about people, uh, to think about race as real and to think about racial differences meaningful. There were many people who, even in the 1950s, so there were prominent scientists even in the 1950s, who weren't completely convinced that we weren't different species. So that not just that we were different races, but different species or subspecies. And what population genetics did was essentially it was mainly left-wing liberals who said within science who said okay we have to move on how do we move on let's study human difference in a more nuanced careful methodical molecular way so rather than kind of measuring people's heads and their skin color let's look at genetics and see if there are differences in blood type or 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 genes between people and in some ways, that was a po- positive thing because it did, it was this kind of break from the past, from the horrible kind of racism of the past that did so much damage, which led to the Holocaust, which um, created these pseudo scientific myths about human difference that we're still laboring under now. But at the same time, was it really the full break that we imagine it to be? That's a question I ask in the book. And that's what I'm not completely convinced of. There have been academics who have questioned whether population genetics in the second half of the 20th century was really just repackaging race science, was kind of presenting it in a slightly different way in order to be more palatable 
for a new generation, but it was still using some of the language and the ideas of race science. So Cavalli Sforza, for instance, as much as he was a hero, he's still a hero to so many within genetics and within biology. Um, and he was very anti-racist, deeply anti-racist. He fought against the racists, the scientific racists of his time. He argued with them. But in his conversation, in his online conversation with me, he he referred to mixed race or mixed heritage people as hybrids. And to use that phrase, to use that word with respect to mixed race people is so inappropriate, not just morally, but scientifically. You know, we are not different breeds, so we can't be hybrids. Um, but that is a legacy, really, of the age that he grew up in. He was in his 90s, you know, in 2018 when I interviewed him. And he hadn't completely let go of the past. And I think this is what we have to remember, that even the good guys can perpetuate ideas that through a lack of introspection or, or fully interrogating what they're doing, can perpetuate ideas that continue to be racist. And that's why every single one of us has to ha have to be so careful about the way that we think about race, and in particular scientists, who when they use race as a variable in quite a lazy way, are not doing that job of asking, well, actually, what do I think race means? We need to know a wide range of information, not just go down an echo chamber or a, a filter bubble of finding information that confirms what we already know. And, and I think the way you go right back to the dawn of man and understand where it all came from, and e even using terms like that, you call it out the dawn of man, much of the language we use is masculine even. And I won't go there today, but I wanted to go right back to that because you said more than 40,000 years ago, there weren't just modern humans, homo sapiens roaming the planet, but also archaic humans, including Neanderthals, who lived in Europe and parts of Western and Central Asia. There were also, ver at various times in the past, many other kinds of human, most of which haven't yet been identified or named. And all these ver versions kind of evolved at the same time. So it's plausible to think that even today, there's various levels of evolution. Every, you know, it's not just that, you know, you talk about the out of Africa hypothesis, and then there's the multi-region hypothesis. And I'd love if you shared this. There's so much in there, so it's probably going to take a little bit of time. But I thought this was so valuable and so enlightening. Well, I think the consensus now, and in fact, the consensus for a long time, is that modern humans evolved in within Africa. So this was the kind of most hospitable place for human life to to evolve at the time. You know, it was, it was if if you can imagine, you know, back in the midst of midst of time, Europe, for instance, was one of the last places that humans went to because it was so inhospitable. Um, Africa had the kind of perfect conditions, and the view now is that it wasn't that humans evolved in just one part of Africa. It's possible that they evolved uh, independently in different parts. And then these, all these different people kind of all came together and they mixed together. And then once we had evolved into modern humans, then we started moving out of Africa into other parts of the world and sometimes moved back again. You know, we'd move to places, move back, keep mixing. Migration and mixing is part of human history you know it really does define our species we've always been moving and we've always been mixing and this is one of the reasons that today we are one of the most homogeneous species on earth genetically so we are more homogeneous than any other primate if you can imagine chimpanzees show more genetic diversity between them than humans do 
So we are very, very similar. What blinds us to that fact, of course, is cultural difference. There is so much cultural, linguistic, in terms of habits and how we dress and all of that difference that we think because we look superficially at people and we think, oh, everyone seems so different. Actually, deep down, you know, this is what I was taught when I was at school. Deep down, we're all the same. Well, that's pretty much true, actually. Deep down, we pretty much are all the same. Um and that is the kind of consensus view at the moment, that we are very homogeneous species. We are very, very similar. There's hardly anything that separates us. And certainly, in terms of genetic difference, it is individual difference that divides us rather than group difference. So there is far more difference within groups than there is between whichever population group that you're talking about. The multi-regional hypothesis is a kind of marginal one. There are still people who who argue for it, not very many, but some, some academics who argue that actually different human races or different populations evolved separately where they're found. So Asians evolved in Asia, Africans evolved in Africa, Europeans evolved in, evolved in Europe. And they sometimes use the, this idea of interbreeding with other human species that existed at the time, like Neanderthals, like Denisovans, as evidence of this difference. So that, you know, there are certain populations on the planet, for instance, that on average have more genetically in common or have a greater degree of Neanderthal ancestry, as it's called, than others, and that somehow that pinpoints difference. But to be honest, pretty much all humans share some Neanderthal ancestry. And like I said, we've always been moving all the time. The evidence that we evolved separately on different continents just really isn't there genetically. Um, so that kind of idea is losing credibility quite quickly. I mean, it's certainly not the consensus view. But there are people who are still attached to it, and certainly there are far-right people <laughs> who are still attached to it. There are ethno-nationalists who are still attached to it. So, and, and as I was saying earlier, in China, for example, there is this view that the Chinese evolved independently from an earlier form of Homo erectus, which is a form of the multi-regional hypothesis then. Um, but these ideas survive because, again, because we want to believe that there is deep down these differences between us. Genetics doesn't back that up. But we want to believe it for whatever reason. It's not just because of racism. It's also because of, of our attachment to certain origin stories. There's a, an idea in innovation where, you know, the 80-20 rule where you kind of spread your bets a little bit. And if you put a, a group of ants down and you put a piece of information, a piece of, piece of data, like an apple, a piece of fruit in the middle of the ants, only a certain amount, 80% or so, will go towards the apple in case it's poisoned but also because the other 20% will actually go and explore elsewhere because they're more interested in, what if there's a strawberry? What if there's something different? Or what if it's poisoned and the race dies? And and I, I often think of the out of Africa hypothesis that way, that you had more dopaminergic people as well, or more people inclined to go and explore and try and just go off and start to wander. And actually, that makes a lot of sense to me because it meant survival of the species as well. We have to remember that people were always moving. So even within Africa, people were always migrating and moving. There were people who left and came back. Um, and we don't know the reasons that people left. They, they may not have just, it may not just have been out of curiosity. It may have been because of some kind of pressure, um, because they were ostracized or alienated for some reason. Um, you know, people move for so many different reasons. Think about the reasons that people move today. They don't just move because of economic pressure or because they're seeking out new opportunities. They also move because of war and famine and, you know, 
all these other things. So I think we have to be careful about ascribing qualities to large groups of people. And we're talking about very large groups of people here over a very, very long, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, not a, sh- not a small period of time. People are moving for all kinds of different reasons. And I can't, you know, it's difficult to say that they all had one thing in common. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I wanted to share something. I, I thought this was fascinating. So you really start the book with, with a trip to Australia, which was heartbreaking, that whole story. It, it made me think of something that I, I was incredibly lucky. I, I grew up in this beautiful wooded area in Dublin in the Phoenix Park. And, and we kind of had the wild garden. So part of the garden was wild. And what always happened was you'd have visitors who would visit my dad and they kind of go, oh, that would look fantastic if you just changed it and you just modernized it and you cut the corners. And, and he was actually trying to grow it so it would it would attract wild bees and all that kind of stuff and provide sustenance for, for nature. And it made me really think about how settlers landed in a place like Australia and they can come from their own paradigm, so their own mental construct of what a sane society looks like. And then they can look at a new, different race to them and go, actually, they're all wrong and try to put manners on it and try to go, oh, well, we'll we'll come and be the saviors here. Now, that's all backed by the fact that they're there to plunder as well and take as much as they can. But I thought that was a useful way to kind of think of somebody landing and kind of going, oh, my God, we'll save these people. Now, sometimes the idea was pure behind that, but oftentimes it wasn't as well. Yeah, and I think this is the difficulty in researching anything or understanding any period of time is that you it's so difficult to put yourself in the shoes of another culture or another period of time it's so, it's so hard i know because i've i've been trying to do that over the last year i've been researching all the way from the paleolithic onwards and when you're looking at these societies that have such customs that you just don't see anywhere in the world anymore or you know artwork that you don't see anywhere and you're trying to picture yourself in their heads you're trying to imagine what they're thinking and it's impossible because it could be anything it could be absolutely anything and something you haven't thought of because it's never been you've never been exposed to that idea before so this is what you know this is what cultural difference means it's about being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes I think one of the benefits of growing up between cultures as I did, because I, I was born in London, but my parents are from India. So I'd, I, I've lived in India, I travel back and forth, and I grew up between these cultures. And when you do that, you start to see them in relation to each other. You start to see your own culture through somebody else's eyes, and you start to see another culture through somebody else's eyes. And you, and you lose this sense that the way that you do things is the right way to do things. Because you understand that every, you know, everyone does things differently and ev- everyone comes from a different place. And um, that makes perfect sense when you're in it. It doesn't make perfect sense from the outside. And that is one of the, one of the tragedies of colonialism then, is that here were nations that believed in their own cultural superiority, trying to impose that, their cultures on other places, never fully appreciating their beauty or their age or their complexity, um, which of course Aboriginal Australian cultures have and always had, and instead trampling all over that. And that that is what made me so upset, I think, when I was in Australia, is um, speaking to 
people who had lost so much generationally over generations. And I'm not a very sentimental person at all. I'm one of the least sentimental people that you meet. But to witness that and to know that they have lost so much that some of which they will never be able to regain. And they're desperately only now, you know, is Australia reckoning with this, with the tragedy of what happened and trying to reclaim the beauty of uh, Aboriginal culture and highlight it and celebrate it and give it back the platform that it always deserved and recognize it. But um, you also have to cry for what was lost. I mean, how can you not? And, and that is a sad thing. I mean, that is another of the tragedies of racism is that it doesn't just rob you of self-respect and, and, economic power and political power and all these things, but also those these beautiful cultures which are so old and so full of meaning and they were just treated as though they were nothing, as though they were dirt. And it still bothers me. I found that whole part so heartbreaking. And and you told us that like Westerners would come there and they felt Aboriginal Australians were but they belonged in the past and they needed to be modernized. And with that, their days were numbered from that moment. And you said, while disease was the greatest killer, starting in September 1794, six years after the first fleet of British ships arrived in what would become Sydney, and continuing into the 20th century, hundreds of massacres also helped to slowly and steadily shrink the indigenous population by 80%. And by the 1930s, around half of Queensland's Aboriginal Australians' population were living in institutions. And this is where you did weep. And I have to say, I was close to it myself, talking about the the heartbreaking story of Gail, who was told she was Italian. She was brainwashed that she was Italian. And with that, so much of her past and her culture was was just wiped out. Yeah, and it was interesting actually going to Gail's house and I sat with her for quite a long time. So, so now that she knows, as an adult, she found out that she had Aboriginal ancestry and she has been trying to reclaim that now. So in her house, she has Aboriginal paintings and textiles and she's been trying to learn the language. But, you know, it's very difficult to do that as an adult. How do you reclaim these things as an, as an adult? And it was very sad. It was, I think it was sad also because, you know, when you're the child of immigrants, you can see that also, not not in the same way, but you, you also kind of are over generations being pulled, your culture will change. There's no doubt about it. And it's, it's not in a violent way. It's in a, it's in a way that I've chosen, <laughs> you know, I'm part of Britain now. And Britain is also part of me. So Britain has also changed with its with its immigrants. It's also adapted with its immigrants. It's, you know, the culture is part of us and we are part of the culture. But um, it is what, you know, it's that thing about what is lost and and what can't be regained and um, that kind of desperation to feel proud about something that only a generation ago people didn't feel proud about. That, you know, that's very difficult. You made me think of something there that you talked about much later in the book. You talked about culture molding people. And I think this is so important and and it's slightly off topic at the moment, but you highlight this at the end of the book. You share that according to the most recent data gathered by the British Medical Association, around a quarter of all British doctors are Asian or British Asian. And this is not because Indians make better medics, of course, but because culture acts as a silent funnel. I thought that was such an important message because 
Culture molds people, even subconsciously, for certain lives and careers. And I felt that was so important to call out. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up. Somebody else said that to me recently, that that was a line that they liked. And I think it's because it explains so much, not just in terms of racial difference, but also in terms of gender differences that we see. So my previous book looked at gender and and sex. And again, you know, a lot of energy has been spent trying to understand why we don't see so many women in science subjects and maths. You know, I do a lot of work around uh, outreach work around this now. And what we don't appreciate is um, that, for example, if you're a young girl um, who is very academically bright and you have a choice between studying medicine and physics and you're told that if you go and, uh, go and become a physicist, you might be the only girl in your class, which I was <laughs> instantly when I, went, when I went and studied engineering, you're going to be the only girl in your class and things will be tough for you and you will face sexism. But if you become a medic, that there are you know more than half of medical students are women, so you won't have any problems on that front and you'll probably have a pretty good career and you can do whichever one you want. Then which one are you going to choose? Of course, it makes perfect sense that you're going to choose medicine. And that is what you also see among um immigrant groups in the UK is that many immigrant communities, Nigerian, Ghanaian, Indian, Chinese, they go into certain professions because, you know, their forefathers or their or their parents went into those professions, carved a route for themselves, made space for them there in ways that other professions didn't. They knew that they would face racism if they did something else. So why don't why don't we do this where we know that there is an accepted route for us here? And medicine in particular, I mean, I have a lot of doctors in my family. Um, in the 60s and 70s, the British government was saying, come to Britain, be a doctor wherever you are in the in the in the Commonwealth, because we need doctors. They gave space to them in ways that other industries didn't. So of course those those routes were already carved. So of course those funnels, those cultural funnels were created. And even now, when there are so many more careers open to us, when when barriers have broken down to some extent, there is still racism in many industries, but at least the barriers have broken down a bit. Children are still making those choices because of those cultural preferences that were made in the past. So these things can last generations. I think we underestimate the extent to the extent to which these cultural choices really kind of impact people at such a subconscious level. And again, like you say, you know, we're raised on stories. And there's another killer line that I love that I pulled. You said the stories were raised on the tales, myths, legends, beliefs, even the old scientific orthodoxies are how we frame everything we learn. The stories are our culture. They are the minds we inhabit. And that's where we have to start. What was put into our minds? What did people talk of? What did we see? Because we, we learn by observation. We learn by what people say around us all the time. And I, I say that because it, it, it works perfectly with what you just said there. But I, I'd love to bring it to a part you did in the book. And you do this brilliantly, by the way, where you talk about being in Disneyland and it's a small world after all, that song that I, I didn't really like when I heard <laughs> no. it first because it, it took me ages to get it out of my head. Yep, but you bring it from there to an Edwardian Disneyland. And this was, I, I, I felt so sad about this. Uh, it was not with little dolls. It was with actual people. And this was the Parisian human zoo. There was a, there was a huge trend in the, in the 19th century for traveling exhibits um, and circuses and things like this. So 
visitors could come and see people from other countries. Now, you know, just imagine in the 19th century, most people wouldn't have had the chance to travel and, and see different cultures firsthand. So this was a kind of fudge so that they could do that in a way. And many countries had them in Europe, including, including in the UK. You would get these big exhibitions where people from other countries would be bought essentially for display like a, in a zoo. In Paris, um, in the uh, Jardin de Vincennes, you can. There is still the remnants of one of these human zoos. It wasn't called a human zoo at the time. It was kind of, kind of called the Paris Exposition or something. Um, but essentially, it was a way to showcase what was happening in the French colonies. So they recreated the buildings or kind of a Disneyfied version of the buildings in, in each of these places. So you can see a kind of Chinese pagoda, you can see a Tunisian house, you can you can see different, like these kind of little recreated villages from, from these different parts of the French colonies. And real human beings from those colonies were bought to work in these places, not as slaves, but you know, not very far from being slaves because they lived there. They lived their lives out in full public view. If a baby was born, that was a new attraction. You know, people would want to come and see that baby, and they were expected to wear the clothes that they would have worn in the countries that they came from, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Because Northern Europe is so cold, you wouldn't be expected to wear those clothes, and yet, yet they were. And this was huge. I mean, millions of visitors would come to these things. The one in Paris is very strange to visit because it's not widely advertised, as you can imagine, but it is still there. And what they've done is um, many of the buildings, they're not intact, but they're in pretty good shape. You can't go into them, but you can see them from the outside. And they've got little plaques describing with pictures showing what it would have looked like originally and just describing it very in very brief terms. And it's eerie. You're walking around this thing. Um, it, it, it's almost as though it's abandoned 100 years ago and nobody touched it since then because things are overgrown, but nothing really has been done to it. And you're just walking around this strange kind of ancient circus in which real human beings were kept like zoo animals. And the frightening thing is, you know, could I have been in one of those exhibits if if I'd lived in that in that time or it 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 just goes to show I think the levels of dehumanization that you require in order to colonize other countries to have slavery to commit genocide um these ideas about racial difference really set that up you know, this is why the science of race is so important for us to understand, because when you understand the history of it, you see that it is so intertwined with the politics. And when you understand why they're intertwined, then you start to see how possible it is for people to start to think of other people as not quite as human as they are. And when they're able to do that, then you get the kind of atrocities that, that we did see in the 19th and 20th centuries. We mentioned classification and You've mentioned understanding the history to understand where we are today and, and hopefully where we won't go. Hopefully it will go in the positive sense. You're an optimist with this as am I, but I think understanding it helps that optimism. And you talked about 18th century Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, who was famous for classifying the natural world, but he turned his eye to human classification. And you tell us in the 10th edition of Systema Naturae, a catalogue published in 1758, he laid out the categories we still use today. He listed four main flavours of human, 
respectively corresponding to the Americas, Europe, Asia and Africa, and each easy to spot by their colours, red, white, yellow and black. 1758 and we still use those terms. Yeah, and I think people, I, I honestly do think that people today generally um, feel that race is something biological or tangible. They they forget just how arbitrary it is. Skin color is one of the most arbitrary ways of dividing human beings. I mean, they're all arbitrary because there are no natural subdivisions between us. But if you're going to pick anything, skin color is perhaps the most arbitrary of all because it varies so much within continents, between continents across the world. You know, what uh, blackness there are people in South India with black skin. There are people in Australia with black skin. There are people in West Africa with black skin. There is no geographical uh, proximity between either of those places. And yet everyone's lumped together in this big one group. There are people in North India with white skin. There are people in East Asia with white skin. There are people in Northern Europe with white skin. And yet they're all lumped together under <laughs> this kind of whiteness blanket. And that's a kind of madness of it. But we have to remember the time. This is during the European Enlightenment. Most of these people who are coming up with these ideas have very little exposure to the rest of the world. They haven't traveled. They're not doing a kind of systematic survey of all the people who live in the world and trying to understand what they are and looking at them. They're just guessing, really. They're reading literature. <laughs> They're relying on secondhand accounts from travelers. Linnaeus, in fact, included two categories for feral-like and monster-like humans, because as far as he was aware from the literature of the time, those people existed. There were monsters and feral humans out there, as far as he knew. I, I'm sure there's a lot of us falling <laughs> into that with our COVID haircuts at the moment. <laughs> but this, this was the madness of it, that you kind of, it's just so vague. There's no sense to it. And yet, um, that was taken up. I mean, there were other thinkers who had their own racial categories. There were some people who thought that, um, you know, race should be defined at the family level, which is actually a little bit more cogent, at least. But if you define it at the family level, then of course we have millions of races. If you define it at the tribe level, then you also have millions of races. So there are lots of ways that you can draw the the boundaries wherever you want to draw them. You can draw draw them anyway. You could draw them at hair color or eye color or height or anything. You know, you can draw them wherever you like. That This is what academics mean when they say that race is a social construct. Where you draw those boundaries is up to you. The fact that we have historically drawn them around skin color is just a historical accident. It doesn't mean anything. It never meant anything. Um, it's what they came to mean that um, to us politically and socially, that's where the kind of value got laid into them. So by the 19th century, you have people investigating, for example, in the US, whether black people have denser bones than white people, whether their skin is thicker, whether they don't feel pain in the same way that white people feel pain. So these categories then became the basis for the science of human difference. They became the basis upon which people investigated human differences, even though they were arbitrary to begin with. And they were elaborated on for so long and so deeply that even now in the 21st century, we feel that there is something meaningful about it, that we still haven't let it go. And that is the madness of, of all of this. I remember when I first pitched uh, Superior to my publisher, to my editor, I wanted, I wanted to call it the mad science of race. Because to me, <laughs> when you understand it, it's just crazy that here is something so arbitrary. These are ideas so 
outside um, the way that we would do science today, you know, completely pseudoscientific, and yet they underpinned the entire science of human difference in the West for hundreds of years, and they define how we live now. I mean, this is the madness of this idea. And it's one of the reasons I mentioned Cavalli Sforza, because although his, even his, he couldn't let go of the past because he did a mental construct of that past, and you rightfully say science is always shaped by the time and place in which it was carried out, but more importantly, it ultimately sits at the mercy of the personal political beliefs of those carrying it out. And we talked we talked on this show before about Max Planck, uh, and he has a great saying that science science progresses one funeral at a time. So essentially, <laughs> the the minds of the people die off, and then the new mind and the new paradigm shifts in. But I I share that to say, in the show also we celebrate things like the Max Planck Institute. But even that, because it survived through the Nazi regime, it has a dark past as well. And I think it's worth saying. I think it's important. I think you're right that we we do need to think about it because there were efforts made around the end of the 20th century for the Max Planck Institute to understand its past. And they'd always known that there was something to be reckoned with there. Um, I think they waited as long as they did for a number of reasons, but partly because the people involved had almost all died off by then. Um, so it's a lot easier politically and personally to run these kind of investigations. And what they essentially did was an uh, historical inquiry into the connections of the Max Planck Institute, or as it was known then, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes, with the Nazi regime. So the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes in Germany in the early 20th century were incredibly powerful. They were home to a number of world-leading scholars. Even Einstein worked there for a while before he left Germany, very wisely left Germany. But what they found through these investigations, that there were a number of scientists, their researchers, who were actively involved with the Nazi regime, who helped um, not just philosophically and theoretically underpin what it was doing, but also carried out experiments on Holocaust victims, who kind of ran the machinery. If you imagine the kind of effort that it would have taken to just, on a practical level, conduct the Holocaust... And it's horrific to think of this now, but that that required engineers, it required scientists, it required so many different people to be involved, very skilled, expert people to be involved. Of course, there would have been people, scientists there, researchers there. And what the Max Planck Institute found, of course, was that there were Kaiser Wilhelm Institute people there as well. Among them, um, most notably, Ottmar von Verschua, who was a German scientist who who carried out experiments on body parts that were sent to him um, from concentration camps, including those of, victim, of little child victims. After the war, and this is one of the most shocking things for me, is that we know, you know, after the war, all those atrocities became clear. Science had to undergo this huge reckoning, which is part of the reason that it, it made this break with eugenics and race science after the Second World War. And yet, Ottmar van Verschua, despite being um, temporarily banned from teaching, returned to academia later as a professor of genetics. And, this, and he maintained his racist views right until the end. He didn't stop being a eugenicist. He was still a eugenicist up until the day he died. He even founded, with a number of other 
um, racist, scientific racists, uh, including some from Britain. He even founded a journal called the Mankind Quarterly, which was essentially a vehicle for eugenics and scientific racism and scientific sexism, which incidentally, even more shocking, is still in publication today. So we have to remember that these histories don't just reside in the past. They are very, very long and they reach all the way into the present. So today's alt-right, the far right, when they go online, as we see them doing, there have been studies into this, looking at um, them trying to find any evidence within the sciences, within new data or research that is coming out that will support their ethnic nationalist theories or these far-right ideas that they have about the world. They are still doing that and they are still citing the papers of these people who lived in the past. They are still celebrating people like von Verschuer and others who were the worst scientific racists of their day. We haven't completely left that strain of intellectual thought behind, that strain of intellectual racism. It still lives in modern-day academia. Let's jump to that because I think the Mankind Quarterly, it's, it's really important to understand that not only that such a publication and more exist like that, but also that they're funded by the Pioneer Fund as well and that they're still going and they're still supported and they're bubbling away. And it's, it's the same pseudoscience that had supported some of the foundings for, for the Holocaust. Here you tell us also about Barry Mailer and uh, Keith Hurst. And I think it's important to call them out as well because they were the ones who actually really dug behind us and investigated it in their own time as well. Yeah, so in the 1980s, these researchers, Barry Mailer and Keith Hurt, Keith Hurt, who was actually working for the Congressional Service at the time, so he was c- carrying out research for senators and, and congressmen, um, they were uncovering these kind of really shady links between, for example, the Reagan administration and these found one of the founders of the Mankind Quarterly, Roger Pearson, who is instantly is still alive today. So I contacted him when I was writing Superior, and he was friends with Von Verschuer. You know, he they set up the Mankind Quarterly together. So there, there is this weird nexus that uh, they recognised in the 1980s between the very high echelons of government, U.S. government. And this network that had been around since the Second World War and, and prior to that of Nazi race scientists, scientific racists, um, people committed to segregation, people who wanted to bring back slavery, you know, eugenicists, the absolute worst of the pseudoscientific racists that you can imagine. And yet here were these links that they were uncovering between them. Um, so one of the things that the found one of the funders of the of the Mankind Quarterly, the Pioneer Fund, as you mentioned, did was he would send out copies of the Mankind Quarterly to prominent conservatives in the U.S. in order to convince them to kind of make the case, the intellectual case for segregation, for maintaining segregation in the United States. So there was a shady network here, and in fact, if you think today. When you look at characters like Steve Bannon or other people on the far right who who have managed to gain a proximity to world leaders, um, they are essentially parroting that same kind of uh, those same kind of ideas. That intellectual thread is exactly the same. They are still pulling at that same thread, and. Um, it should worry us because the same kind of stuff is being cited. I was just reading the other week that um, on Retraction Watch, which is a wonderful website which documents when papers get retracted from journals. So there's a very famous University of Toronto professor called Philippe Rushton, who is who has since passed away, who 
was one of the big scientific racists of his time, uh, relatively recently, one of the big scientific racists of his time. And he would make these very kind of weird, spurious allegations, uh, claims about links between lack of intelligence and blackness and things like this. And two of his papers have only now been retracted, just now. <laughs> these journals um, and he was also a contributor to the mankind quarterly so so when you know i don't think people should look at this history and think oh it belongs to the past you know we don't have this problem anymore this is something that nobody would ever do now that academics wouldn't even countenance now well i can promise you there are people in academia today there are people at universities writing for the mankind quarterly right now there are people within academia right now some of them with very prominent positions in universities who are on the alt-right sharing these views on online platforms, far-right online platforms. And it's only through an enormous amount of vigilance on the part of fellow scientists and publishers and others that we're slowly starting to root them out. But they're, they've got such a firm grip on certain corners of academia, particularly in certain fields like intelligence research. In intelligence research, they've got such a firm foothold. I think it's going to take a generation before we can kind of fix this problem. But it's a deep problem and it and it's and it's directly related to what was happening after the Second World War. I think that's a a, a really important message here is because you, you see it with most conspiracy theories, when there's some information there and you say for those with a political ideology to sell the science, such as it is, becomes a prop. And the data itself doesn't matter so much as how it can be spun. And it can be spun in such many ways when you have people who are suggestible and, and actually angry and when they're fed this information and they just need a little sliver of science to be able to prove and go after and go, yeah, I've been confirmation <laughs> bias here kicking in. And that's the point, isn't it? It is. And I guess we're all guilty of that. You know, we all have, we all have our particular worldviews, our political, p political stances that we have. And we look for information that reaffirms that rather than denies it. That's why, you know, we choose to read the papers that we do or the, or the, or use the platforms that we do. And we have to watch out for that. I think it's very easy to get sucked into, uh, misinformation or these webs of, um, disinformation and these rabbit holes it can happen to anyone um and uh, you know whether you're on the right or the left i think we have to remember that so for example last year um i left twitter so i quit twitter completely and one of the reasons i did that was um partly because i'm involved in this new initi initiative called challenging pseudoscience um and I've done quite a bit of work over the last couple of years around misinformation, disinformation, how that spreads online. And I really do think these social media platforms are vehicles for this. You know, they they um, manipulate every single one of us. And the way that their algorithms are constructed is to make us angry because the angrier we are, the more we engage. The more we engage, the longer we stay on the platforms and they make more money out of it. You know, that, that is part of their business model. The problem with that is every single one of us becomes susceptible to manipulation then. We become more angry. We become more engaged, but not in a positive way, not in a kind of constructive way. We're not listening to other people. We're just fighting them or denigrating them or something even more toxic than that. We create monsters out of these platforms. And, you know, one thing we have to guard against, I think, is assuming that it's always other people who are 
who are becoming radicalized or becoming manipulated online, trust me, it's every single one of us. If you're on social media, you at some point are likely to have become a victim of misinformation. You are likely to have spread a piece of misinformation because it's that common online. And that's because we tend to want to believe something that already aligns with our existing political views. I read a lot about the brain and there's studies to show that when you find a piece of information that confirms what you already know, you get a dopamine hit. And it's like, well done for finding information that agrees with what you already know. <laughs> it's much harder to actually disconfirm the information than confirm it. It's hard to challenge yourself. Yeah. It's hard to, to be challenged. It's hard to change your mind. It's hard to hold up your hand and say that you are wrong. And I think one of the, one of the most toxic things I see happening online uh, on these social media platforms is that... Um, we are so afraid of the censure of our peers, of people who agree with us, that we, we go even further into agreeing with them. So we don't say anything that might challenge them either. So even people we agree with, we never challenge, we never question, we never argue with, and that creates silos even further. Um, so, you know, I say this to everybody, <laughs> I shouldn't really, but I do tell everybody, just leave social media. I know it has a lot of benefits. And I know, for example, with the Me Too movement and with Black Lives Matter, it's been so important. But just be mindful of the dangers here if you are going to use it. And if you can find other ways of achieving your political or social or activist goals, then please do that instead, because there are better ways out there. I really do. I really do think so. One of the ways that I, I wanted to just finish up was that one of the most heartening pieces, and, and actually while I'm saying this, I, I'd love you to think of a parting message for for our audience today and perhaps where they can find you. So maybe first ask you, Angela, where, where can people find out more about your work, etc.? These days I'm mostly just on my website. So it's angelasaney.co.uk. <laughs> I am on LinkedIn, although I don't use it very much. But I, I do a lot of online events. So if you want to sign up to one of them and you can ask me questions, then the links are all on my website. What I took most out of this, and I feel it is the way forward for all of us, is communities. So the idea of relatedness and community and family. And I think it's one of the benefits, the silver linings, if I'm really grasping for one from the coronavirus epidemic, <laughs> is that many of us have realized the importance of that and networks. And something you just said there, actually, about the whole idea of challenging. And it, it's at the heart of innovation and change and transformation is being able to feel that you can challenge the status quo and you know, go against the grain because the people that go against grain are the people who change the world. And we need more people like that. And for that, for what you've done as well and the hard work you've put in and the sacrifices you've made and the travels you've done, I want to thank you on behalf of the show and me because you've enlightened me hugely and opened my mind. And it won't be won't be possible to go back and think any other way. So I appreciate that greatly. Oh, well, that's so kind of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. What about you? What way would you like to, what would you be your parting <laughs> message for our audience today? Well, for me, I think, especially in the kind of divided, polarized world that we live in at the moment, I would love people to remember while they're fighting for equality, and I am also fighting for equality with them, is to remember our shared humanity, that we are, we are all going through our own painful things all the time. And if you can understand the pain in yourself or in your loved ones, then you can also understand the pain in other people and attach yourself to that empathy when you're thinking about the rest of the world. And remember that we're all in the same boat, really. Author of Superior, 
the return of race science, Angela Saini. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.